Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Sherry Quinn. Utah's Dead Sea, the Great Salt Lake, is 75 miles long and nearly 35 miles wide. The saltwater remnant of ancient Lake Bonneville teems with aquatic life and serves as a critical flyway for millions of migratory birds. The lake is surrounded by wetlands and adjacent to Utah's industrial center, and so it's vulnerable to development pressures. Utah State University's Science Unwrapped explores this Utah gem in its new spring 2015 Great Salt Lake Today series, hosted by Utah State University's College of Science. Today on the program, Nancy Huntley, professor of biology and director of the Ecology Center at USU, joins us to talk about the series. And tonight's featured speaker, Wayne Wurtzbaugh, professor of watershed sciences at USU, discusses the Great Salt Lake. The Science Unwrapped series this spring has the general topic of the Great Salt Lake today, and the first talk is this Friday, January 16th, with Dr. Wayne Wurtzbaugh from the Department of Watershed Sciences in the Ecology Center, who will talk about the Great Salt Lake, uh, its interesting biology and chemistry and history and its many uses. Uh, that'll be followed by a talk on February 20th by Karen Kettenring, who will talk about an interesting set of plants, the reeds phragmites, uh, some of which are uh, not native. They're from other parts of the world and are problems as what we call invasive species, species that expand and have effects we don't like. Uh, on March 20th, um, artist Mark Lee Coven will be talking about some of the land art of the Great Salt Lake, especially the spiral jetty and sun tubes. And on Friday, April 17th, a microbiologist from Westminster College, Dr. Bonnie Baxter, will be talking about extremophiles, uh, especially microbes that live in um, unusual environments. And in the case of the Great Salt Lake, the extreme is saltiness, so microbes in a high salt lake. Why is it important to feature Great Salt Lake right now? Well, it's a, a big, interesting, important ecological feature. It's a body of water big enough that you can see it from space. Uh, the Salt Lake City area has grown around the Great Salt Lake, so people live essentially right on the shore of it. And although people know it's here and know it's important, they don't necessarily know very much about its ecology or biology or chemistry or geology. Uh, it's also a lake that's at the moment at almost, I think, a long time low in water level uh, because of the drought cycle and the changing patterns of climate we have. And it's a lake that depends on water that flows in from the surrounding areas and other uses by people of that water threatens the lake. So it's really an interesting topic. And Dr. Wurtzbaugh, what do you love about Great Salt Lake? Well, uh, I really love being out on the lake. It's uh a little bit uh, different than being out on a freshwater lake. There, as Nancy said, there's not a lot of people that use it. So uh, once you're out there, it's a little bit maybe like being on the moon if you're out away from the shore, a little bit surreal. So I, I sort of enjoy that uh, unique nature of it. But I also like it just uh, because of its importance. It's home to what, hundreds of thousands of birds that migrate through and use it and eat the brine shrimp and the brine flies and other organisms along the shoreline. Uh, there's a lot of recreation, bird watching, waterfowl hunting, sailing. So people use it a lot, although I think it could be used a lot more. I think it's very underutilized. It's sort of a lake, as Nancy said, that a lot of people don't know a lot about. How's the health of the lake right now? I remember being out on the lake with you quite a few years ago, and you were collecting insects and water samples at the time. 
Yeah, there's uh, several threats to the lake. Uh, one that Nancy alluded to, and that is just water's in short supply, and the, and the lake level's been going down and down for decades. We're at a near historic low, um, and so uh, like Salt Lakes worldwide, uh, often we're in it located in arid areas, and so water is pretty precious. So we start diverting a lot of that water, and voila, the, there's not enough water to reach the Salt Lake or, or other systems. I visited uh, a lake in Iran uh, last year, Lake Urmea, uh, very similar to the Great Salt Lake, uh, divided in half by a causeway, same size, same depth. They've diverted so much water that now half of the lake is gone. They're worried about dust storms and salt storms uh, that are going to impact all the agriculture that's been developed by diverting that water. So that's that's a big issue for the Great Salt Lake. We're not drying it up as rapidly as Lake Urmea or another lake, the Aral Sea, where that happened. Uh, but we're taking it down. So that's a bit the biggest concern, I think, in the long term. We also have very high mercury levels in the lake, uh, probably a legacy of mining, uh, but also new mercury sources coming in. Some of that gets into the birds, uh, could be threatening their health, and threatens the health of people that eat some of those, uh, some of the, the ducks, for example. There's three species on a consumption advisory, so you don't want to eat too much of those particular ducks. We also have high selenium levels. We have high copper and lead levels. Not not extreme, but they're certainly bear watching. Uh, and in uh, the time I've been here in Utah, about 31 years, there's been a huge increase in, in the concern and the monitoring and people working on the lake. So that's a, really been a, a, a really good thing to see. And so we've, we've the Department of Environmental Quality, Division of Wildlife Resources, uh, forestry, fire, and state lands. All these agencies have major programs looking at the lake, assessing whether we have problems, whether things are getting bit worse, or in some cases, hopefully, we can we can improve things. And how is the salinity of the lake on the north side and the south side as of late? Yeah, the lake's really been divided up into four different bays. So we have the the north arm or, or Gunnison Bay and then the, the south arm, Gilbert Bay, those are the two biggest parts. And all our water comes in on the, um, on the Weber River, the Jordan River, and the Bear River, and all those flow out into the south arm. So its salinity is less. So right now it's about 160 grams per liter of salt. And to give you a reference, seawater is 35 grams per liter. So it's a pretty salty place out there, and, and it restricts the number of types of organisms that can grow there. But that's kind of nothing compared to the north arm, because the north arm gets its water uh, after the water flows through the railway causeway out there. And in the north arm now, uh, it's at, sat we call it at saturation. The water can't hold any more salt. So it's about 320, 330 grams per liter almost 10 times that of seawater. And so uh, Nancy mentioned the extremophiles um, that Bonnie Baxter will be talking about. You have a really unique set of organisms that, that can tolerate that extremely high salinity that occurs in the north. Are, are the brine shrimp then mostly in the lower salinity parts of the lake, or how, how much can they tolerate? Yeah, the brine shrimp um, are pretty tolerant. They can actually 
tolerate and grow physiologically in, in fresh waters. But when you have fresh waters, you also have a lot of other organisms like fish, or there's some sorts of predaceous insects that'll, that'll eat brine shrimp. So the brine shrimp, although they could live there, they in a natural system, they don't really survive because you have these predators. Um, and the brine shrimp will grow way up into 200, maybe 250 grams per liter, approaching that of the north arm. But they don't do very well at those salinities. I had an undergraduate do an experiment recently at a lot of different salinities and found that the, although the brine shrimp survived at pretty high salinities, their growth was really slow and very little reproduction. So uh, we have good salinities now in, in the south arm at around 160 grams per liter, although they might do better at, down at 100 grams per liter. So the big populations uh, of the brine shrimp uh, are down in the south arm in, in, in Gilbert Bay. Do you know what the health of the brine shrimp population is like right now? Yeah, the, the, the brine shrimp population is good. Uh, we have an industry on the lake where they harvest the resting eggs that are produced by the shrimp, and those resting eggs are used in aquaculture worldwide. And I was talking just yesterday with one of the people that works in, in, in the industry, and the, the, the harvest is on right now, and, and they're getting a good harvest. So we have a good population out there. Uh, they're, they're, they are doing well. Is it about the same, or do you know if the industry on the lake has fluctuated? I was there about 10 years ago with brine shrimp harvesters, and they were doing quite well, but they feared they were edging towards a downturn. Like any animal population, you have year-to-year -year fluctuations, so it goes up and down somewhat. But my understanding is that the industry's um, pretty much the last 10 years has been doing quite well. So there's a lot of brine shrimp out there, and they're producing a lot of these cysts. So although there's minor ups and downs, uh, nothing, nothing major has changed. So the industry is in good shape. The birds that utilize uh, those brine shrimp as for fueling their migrations and raising, you know, feeding their young are doing well as, as well. That's good to hear. And then what measures are, are being taken or are proposed in order to protect the health of the, the lake? What are some of the uh, obstacles and challenges? Yeah, that's an interesting question in that most of our freshwaters in Utah and in the United States for that uh, have what's referred to as numeric uh, criteria that are set by the states and by the Environmental Protection Agency where they say we can only have so many milligrams per liter of, of copper or we can only have so many milligrams or micrograms per liter of mercury in the water. And that's these numeric standards. And so, you know, the state can monitor and say, oops, uh, you know, the Jordan River's over that level. We've got, a, we've got a problem here and then resolve that. The Great Salt Lake only has one numeric standard, and that was uh, formed uh, just a few years ago. And that was for the uh, a toxin called selenium, a, a type of metal. But the state's in the process of trying to draft and figure out what, what criteria we can set for the lake. We have somewhat unique set of organisms that, that live in there that have different tolerances than, say, a rainbow trout in a stream. Uh, and the water chemistry is different. So we, we can't e as easily just adopt 
draft uh, criteria that other agencies uh, have figured out for fresh waters. So we're in the process of, of working on that. There's a lot of monitoring going on. Uh, one of the biggest recent concerns uh, for uh, managing the lake is that the two causeways that allowed water to flow from the south arm into the north arm of the lake through the railroad causeway, those were closed in the last year because they were failing and the railroad was afraid that uh, they were going to have rail, uh, rail cars topple into the lake. So we're in the process now of trying to figure out how to replace those causeways with a bridge. And if, if so, what, what size a bridge should be made? How much water do we want to flow to the north? There's also a return flow of the really salt, heavy salt water uh, that flows back in the opposite direction. So it, uh, the, the size of this bridge uh, is going to influence kind of the salt balance on, on the two sides of the causeway. And there's a lot of competing interest. Uh, the salt industries in the south arm, for example, would love to have a whole lot more salt flow from the north back to the south. Um, if we get too much salt flowing to the south, uh, it might get too salty in the south and um, you know, not have good growth of the brine shrimp or the brine flies that are also important food for the birds that come through. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people at the table discussing these issues and trying to decide exactly what's the best management. And then overlaying on all that is our climatic cycles or uh, uh, some climate change that's certainly down the road uh, that influences just how much fresh water gets uh, dropped into the watershed and then how much fresh water comes into the lake. So there's a lot of, a lot of things to be considered and you know, difficult management issues because you have different interests that want different things for the lake or different parts of the lake. Right. And is there a timeline for the bridge? Yeah, the goal, actually, the Army Corps of Engineers is a major player that regulates this, but other agencies as well have to do some permitting on it. The railway is hoping to start construction of this new uh, bridge in, in the early summer. Uh, there's quite a few hurdles to get through from the Army Corps, from the Division of Water Quality, uh, forestry, fire, and state lands. Uh, so it, hopefully it can it gets started this summer because if we have no exchange, uh, we're going to change both arms of the lake quite a bit uh, in just a, a year or two if, if we didn't uh, get our act together and get the proper decision made on that. Could you give a synopsis of what the industries are around the lake, particularly on the west side? Yeah, the, the, in terms of monetary value, the minerals extraction industry is by, uh, by far the largest. So you have uh, in, the, uh, in Bear River Bay, you have some, a major salt company there that's making potash fertilizer as their primary product, although they make other things. So they have some huge salt ponds. Uh, I'm looking at a satellite image as, as we speak here, and you can, you can see these, these salt ponds uh, really show up to be a, a major component of Bear River Bay. So that's a major. Uh, Magnesium Corporation of America has their salt ponds on the southwest part of, of the lake over towards Tooele. And their major product is magnesium, although they make other things as well. 
Uh, other salt companies take sodium chloride that we put on our roads uh, and titanium. A lot of different metals are extracted from, from these, these brines. So that's a major industry. The brine shrimp uh, industry, where you uh, harvest these cysts and use them in aquaculture, that's a $100 million industry itself. And then the third largest one would be uh, recreation, recreational use. So we have bird watchers out there. We have waterfowl hunters, boaters, and all the, that adds up to a, a sizable income for the state of Utah for utilizing the lake. How successfully would you say it's been managed for the brine shrimp industry? I mean, they've been having pretty abundant harvests, it seems, for for many, many years. The Division of Wildlife Resources is in charge of management of that resource, and they have a very intensive monitoring program where they go out weekly uh, uh, during the summer and at two- or three-week intervals, even through the winter, to keep track of of the brine shrimp population and a lot of the chemistry and physics of, of the lake. And so the, the program that's set up is during the harvest season when the uh, brine shrimpers are, are skimming these eggs off the surface or collecting them from the shoreline, uh, the Division of Wildlife Resources is out there monitoring the number of, of, of these resting eggs. They're called cysts. And when the cyst numbers drop to a certain level, I think it's 28 per liter. Uh, the uh, industry is asked to stop down, and harvest that year is stopped. So that way they can uh, stop over-harvest of, of the, uh, the, the eggs that uh, sustain the population. So it seems to be managed uh, quite well. I mean, we have other things that, that can occur that's uh, maybe beyond our control or limited control. So... For example, in the mid-1980s, when I was first here, uh, we had really, really wet years, and so much fresh water came into the, uh, into the Great Salt Lake that the salinity got too low in the south arm in Gilbert Bay. And so the brine shrimp uh, couldn't survive at, at those salinities, and they disappeared, although some of the population uh, shifted to the north arm that at that time became a lot fresher, or not fresh, but not as salty, and the brine shrimp could survive up there. So you have those sorts of climatic things. And the worry right now, as the lake continues to recede, as we've been in a long drought, and as demands for the water are increasing, the concern is that even the south arm could become too salty uh, for good production of, of the brine shrimp. Uh, but so far, so good. Uh, things are... are, are are going along well. My next question, um, maybe Nancy, you can answer it as well. If you like wondering, um, as ecologists studying a lake like the Great Salt Lake, a hyper saline environment, what questions that can help answer in terms of major questions in ecology and ecosystems? And what's the importance of studying such a unique and seemingly simple lake? Well, I'm an ecologist, but I don't study the Great Salt Lake, so Wayne will have to do most of answering this question. But we, we want to understand all of the world, and uh, we don't know how unusual the Salt Lake, Great Salt Lake is until we study it. Um, although it's unusually salty, it still has biology and chemistry and food webs and the same similar kinds of dynamics you find in other ecosystems. So it's not, not an ecosystem. Uh, and Wayne, I'll let Wayne say more specific things about the questions he's found most interesting to follow up on there. 
Yeah, as you said, it it is a simple ecosystem, although the more we study it, the more complicated it seems. But so one of the things that's facilitated in, in these uh, simpler ecosystems is that you don't have as many players in the food web. You don't have as many uh, uh, plants that are producing uh, material for the rest of the food web. There's not as many predators and not as many grazers and so forth. So in that simpler ecosystem, it's a little easier to study some of those interactions. So that's, that's one area where working on saline lakes uh, um, is, is important. Another one, and it's not my area of expertise so much, is uh, a lot of these microbes uh, that, that uh, can live at 330 grams per liter, the sort of thing that Dr. Bonnie Baxter will be talking about. Uh, there's a lot of work um, from her group. There's work here at USU as well on studying the, the genomics, uh, you know, the unusual gene properties, the unusual uh, metabolic pathways that these organisms uh, utilize to, to survive in, in these environments. And there's, you know, the hope on studying these sorts of things are, you know, me medical applications or industrial applications uh, producing unusual compounds that, that are, are useful for, for humans as well. Yeah, that reminds me that uh, one of the biochemists on the team that puts together Science Unwrapped mentioned when we were talking about this program that it's the enzymes of extremophiles that run all of biotech. So at one of the sci later scientific uh, Unwrapped presentations, some of our after activities will be about that, uh, the use of unusual enzymes that work in extreme environments for biotech purposes. I'm assuming that these hypersaline lakes are rare or at least uncommon, and what has to take place in order for these lakes to come about and to exist, and if you could speak to the origins of these lakes, if they're really a unique set of circumstances. Saline lakes form in what we call closed basins, or a fancy name for it is endorheic basins, but they have no outlet to the sea, so they, you have water coming in, flowing in through, through from the mountains, in our case from the Wasatch. And those fresh waters do have small amounts of salt in it, just they're so small we don't notice it uh, much. They actually add maybe a little taste and flavor, but we're happy with that. Uh, but the, those salts come down with the water and flow into the lake, but in a closed basin lake, the only way the water gets out is by evaporation. And so evaporation occurs, and so the water goes out, the salts are left behind. Essentially, it's the same process that we see with the oceans and the seas. You have the rivers bringing these salts down from the terrestrial environment out into the ocean. The oceans evaporate and leave the salts behind. But in the a lot of the closed basin lakes, uh, you do have hypersaline conditions, even saltier conditions than, than in the ocean. Although they seem a little rare, they're, they're not as rare as, as you might think. And, and particularly in Central Asia, uh, a, a lot of systems in uh, Australia and other places, you do have a, a lot of salt lakes. And even in the West, we, you know, we have the Great Salt Lake. It's the largest lake uh, in the western part of the United States. You have Mono Lake, uh, which is in eastern uh, California, uh, the Salton Sea in southern California. Uh, there's a number of, of very large lakes around, so they do contribute substantially. And because of their high productivity and the fact that they often 
don't have fish in them, that means a lot of the organisms that grow in them, uh, brine shrimp, for example, or the brine flies that we have here, uh, instead of being eaten for fish, those are available for birds. So these are real magnets for birds that come through. And so we have birds that come through and they fly from here and then maybe over to Mono Lake. Uh, we also have uh, birds that come through here. A phalarope feeds extensively on the Great Salt Lake and then flies down to northern Argentina to a lake about the, a salt lake about the size of the Great Salt Lake called Mar Chiquita. And so uh, these lakes are really important in production of, of food organisms uh, for, for birds. We're just about out of time, Nancy. Can you tell us a little bit more about the event tonight? So Science Unwrapped is uh, Friday night at 7 p.m. Uh, we'll start with uh, Dr. Wayne Wurzbaugh's talk, and it will be followed by another hour, hour and a half or so of what we call after activities, so fun things, hands-on things for people to do and look at and learn from. Uh, please show up. It's free for all, and you even get free cookies and lemonade after the talk. Can you also tell us about the other program you're involved with, Art System, and is that how you pronounce it? Well, you can pronounce it either Art System or Artsy Stem. I like Artsy Stem better. I, that's, art System doesn't speak to me, but Artsy Stem kind of has a, a nice sound to it. Uh, so that is a new program that's funded by um, several different foundations, a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts and some contributions from uh, the Kane College of Arts, the Quinney College of Natural Resources, the College of Science, and the Ecology Center. And it's a program that will feature a number of visits from artists who do science-related art and scientists who work with artists uh, who will be uh, giving presentations. And that starts next week. Our first visiting artist is Andrea Polly, Dr. Andrea Polly from University of New Mexico, who's an environmental artist who works with atmospheric phenomena. And what she will bring with her is a, a piece she's made called Particle Falls. And it's a real-time visualization of particulate 2.5 air pollution, uh, which is the problem we have here in the Cache Valley, small particles in the air. So she will be speaking next Thursday, uh, which is January 22nd at 5 p.m. in the performance hall for about an hour. And then at the end of her talk, we will go outside and we'll unveil Particle Falls so people will be able to see that. It will stay up here on campus for several days, and then we'll show it again later in the semester. So if you want to see what our air really looks like, uh, show up uh, next Thursday, January 22nd at 5 p.m. and stay around until the sun goes down and we can look at particle falls. Wayne, was there anything else that you wanted to, to add? Just to hope a lot of people come out. Uh, besides some of the science, uh, I'll show a lot of pretty pictures of the lake. Some I've taken and a lot of other uh, artists have taken of the lake. So uh, we'll try and work in a little bit of art in, in as well. So uh, hope to see you there. Thank you both so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate your time and really looking forward to the talk. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Dr. Nancy Huntley and Dr. Wayne Wurzbach. Tonight's Science Unwrapped talk, Great Salt Lake, Stranger in Utah's Backyard, is at 7 in the Eccles Science Learning Center Auditorium at the USU campus. For Access Utah, this is Sherry Quinn.
programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, featuring lunch panini salads, sandwiches, and soups. Full menu at crumbbrothers.com. Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. The largest evolutionary time tree of land plants was recently created by a team of researchers in order to investigate how flowering plants survive freezing temperatures. My name is Daniel McGlynn, and I am a postdoctoral researcher in the biology department at Utah State. McGlynn contributed to the geographic and climate data for this project, which looked at how plants have evolved from early tropical and humid habitats to withstand the cold temperatures of modern climates. McGlynn joins us to discuss this project and also his work in macroecology. So I did my doctoral work at Oklahoma State uh, University, and then before coming to Utah State, I was a postdoc at University of North Carolina, and that's where I first became involved with the current research um, that I'm going to be talking to you about today. And my area of expertise is really biodiversity, primarily on plants and birds, and in particular thinking about uh, what's referred to as macroecology or really big patterns in ecology. Can you discuss your interest in ecology and biodiversity and what drives your research? What really interests me in uh, biodiversity and macroecology in general is that there's such a high degree of complexity and different processes that shape patterns of biodiversity and macroecology but despite that, we tend to still see really strong kind of consistent patterns that show up across taxonomic groups and across habitat types. And these really general patterns are just very fascinating from a research perspective because it really begs the question, why? why? Why is this? We know that, for example, plants are very different biologically than birds. But why do their patterns of diversity look very similar oftentimes? And by understanding these general patterns, it might give us better clues into predicting how biodiversity will change in the future. And that's really the, what kind of guides my research. When did this interest start for you? I got interested in biology uh, as a child, really uh, going hiking. And I've always had a field component to my research. And um, that's really what got me excited about ecology was as a kid, I'd always just kind of thought natural systems were beautiful and interesting and complex, but I didn't think there was any rules that kind of governed them. And so I was just really excited when I discovered that actually there's a whole science that, that kind of unravels how forest changes through time or how populations of organisms self-regulate themselves. Um, to think that there's order in that was just really interesting and it's kind of really kind of led me my whole way into to trying to discover what those rules are and, and what governs these patterns we often see in nature. What patterns emerge that you see from diversity? At the global scale, we often tend to see that organisms tend to be most diverse at the equator, for example. That's just one, one really general pattern. And there are certain exceptions to this. For example, salamanders are an interesting exception, where their center of diversity actually is in the temperate region. But for the most part, um, this kind of equatorial high band of diversity really brings up a lot of interesting explanations. So is it something to do with temperature itself that drives diversity, or does it have to do with greater resources or greater stability 
these are questions biologists have been fascinated with for a really long time, all the way from um, the time of Darwin. And it's just one example of kind of the surprising similarity that tends to, to occur across biological um, taxonomic groups. There's other, there's other examples. For example, um, when we go up a mountain, we tend to see in across different groups, we tend to see that most diversity is kind of in the middle of the mountain typically. Um, at the higher elevation, we have the lowest amount of diversity, and at the lowest, in the lower elevation, very lowest elevations, very low diversity. But in that inter- intermediate elevations, it tends to be where we see a lot of different, both birds and plants and uh, fungi and all sorts of different things that have that intermediate pattern. So those are just a couple of the examples of of kind of generality that we do see and that we'd really like to understand better. And macroecology provides us a lens to try to address those and understand why we why we see these generalities. I understand the the time tree project is not your primary work. Can you talk about what you and the other researchers were trying to accomplish and and what questions you were pursuing with this work? The question we wanted to know is why and how do plants um, tolerate freezing? It's thought, and we're really thinking about flowering plants primarily. So not your conifers, not your evergreens, but these are your plants like your magnolias and your tulips and your maple trees, things like that. Um, those are the those are the groups we're really interested in. And we're wondering, well, evolutionarily, it's thought that they originated in the tropics in very warm conditions. And they were woody. They tended to be woody plants. But now we see this vast array of uh, structural adaptations that these flowering plants show. And we're thinking that some of that diversity has something to do with their ability to tolerate cold. So, for example, um, some of the plants are herbaceous. That's one adaptation that our analysis shows is an adaptation towards um, seasonal freezing. In other words, if your above-ground part can't adapt to um, tolerate freezing, it's it's a, a good strategy to just lose your above-ground stem into overwinter as either an underground stem or a seed. And so that's one adaptation that was really critical to uh, flowering plants adapting to freezing. Another important adaptation is that they basically became deciduous, which means that they drop their leaves in the winter. And this is an interesting adaptation because this adaptation actually evolved after plants um, arrived in the in the freezing zone. So unlike herbaceousness, which evolved before plants migrated north, deciduousness actually, our analysis shows, it evolved after the fact. Another, the third strategy is um, that these plants have shown is that they change their vascular system. And so evolutionarily, plant, these plants were in very warm, humid regions, and they had very large um, pipes, very large diameter pipes to conduct water. These pipes are great for distributing resources, but they're very vulnerable to freezing because you can have a pocket of air get trapped in them, and then that pocket of air can basically damage the pipe and make it, in, make it um, not work. And so one of the adaptations that these plants had to evolve was narrower piping systems that were more resistant to basically freezing and and thawing. You identified the order of evolutionary events. And for example, woody plants became herbs before being able to move into freezing climates. What did you learn about plant adaptations? One of the things our analysis sheds light on is the ordering of these adaptations. And that's, that's something we haven't had as much information on. And our analysis showed that 
Um, prior to plants moving into freezing zones, they were tended, you know, if one adaptation they might have before they make that move is being herbaceous, and the other adaptation was also the smaller conducting vas- vascular system. Um, the deciduous adaptation was the one that really came after the fact. So plant the, these clades of plants, they migrated north, and then once they were really exposed to freezing, um, there, there was a very strong pressure, a selective pressure, to evolve this deciduous trait. For those clades that were not able to do that, they, they most likely went extinct. And what was your role specifically on the project? My role in the project was really in getting the geographical uh, information on all of our plant species. And so we had about 30,000 plant species, and we needed to know where on the earth those plants were located um, in present day. And GBIF, or the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, provided a, a repository of information on where those plants have been recorded as existing. And um, this is a very large uh, a project that GBIF, and they aggregate data from herbaria all over the world. And so, you know, a local plant collector might deposit their specimen into a local collection, and then that, that larger herbaria puts, provides their data to GBIF. So from that organization, we got 47 million records. And um, from those records, we were able to derive where on the earth those plants occurred, and from that information, we basically combined that, combined that information with climate information to infer what, whether or not that plant could tolerate freezing. If it occurred in an area that exp- was exposed to freezing, we assumed that, yes, it was adapted to that condition. If it did not, then we assumed that it was not actually adapted to freezing. And that's how that was a really important component of this, of this overall project. How much can you learn from just the leaf of a plant? The twig might even be more informative, actually, (laughs) than the leaf. You know, the leaf actually can tell you a lot. Oftentimes with the leaf, you can at least tell if it's an evergreen leaf or if it's a deciduous leaf. Um, Oftentimes, evergreen leaves are very thick and and tend to have like a waxy coating on them because the plant is investing a lot of resources into that leaf. They want to keep that leaf all year round and they want to protect it from it being eaten or frozen or any of these uh, you know, there's a lot that could happen to that leaf. Whereas a deciduous plant, they really don't invest as many resources, and they try to grow as big of a leaf as possible as quickly as possible because they need to get that out in the spring, get it collecting sunlight and um, proce- you know, processing resources before they, that leaf basically goes dormant and falls off the tree. So oftentimes, yeah, we, when given a leaf, you can at first um, kind of make a call of this is probably a deciduous thing. With the twig, what you'd be able to do is look at the size of the vascular tissue. And so if you, if you cut that twig longitudinally and you sanded that down and put it underneath a microscope, you'd be able to look at how big the vessels are. And basically what our research shows is that a lot of these um, plant families that are adapted to freezing have fairly small vascular tissues relative to the things that we see in the tropics. And that was one of the really key adaptations. Also, it's very possible that you'd be able to tell whether or not the plant is an herb or not. If it's, you know, with the twig, if the twig is woody, you know, best bet is that it does have secondary above ground stems and it does not die back every year. Um, Most herbaceous, um, herbaceous plants that are dying back at the end of the year, they don't lay down any woody tissue. And so um, that would be, you'd also be able to tell that. So you'd be able to tell a lot from just a little bit of information. It really would fit into 
being able to understand this plant probably can withstand freezing. It's not going to be as big of a problem. How do you use the fossil plant record? We utilize the fossil record primarily for constructing the phylogenetic tree, which is just, um, it's a hypothesis about how all of these different plants are related to one another. The fossils are really useful in terms of both providing a base for the trees, so all of the species have the same common ancestor that goes back to this very primitive plant, and that's very useful in terms of of knowing where that uh, root occurs. What's the most impactful fossilized plant? Amborella is one of the one of the really important fossils, one of the most early earliest flowering plants that's important to to put on the tree, and it's especially important to put the date because the dates of when these different groups evolved are based on assumptions about how rapidly molecular the genome of the plant changes through time. And that's, those assumptions are fairly valid, but you do need an accurate starting point to, to kind of say, well, this is where we know where this plant occurred back in the fossil record so many millions of years ago, and now we can, we can infer where these more modern uh, plants when they when they first appear based on their genome. And so that's um, one of the things that's, that is really unique about our project is we did assemble the largest currently existing phylogenetic tree of plants in the, on the globe. That's a big accomplishment. I didn't necessarily contribute to that component of the project, but yeah, it's a big, it's a big accomplishment for sure. What is the history of this project? Uh, what are its roots, so to speak? So we began this research project three years ago. And it was through a working group, which is basically where a bunch of scientists can come together and work on a project at the National Evolutionary Synthesis Center, NESENT. And NESENT is in Durham, North Carolina. And the title of the the whole project, this is just one of the papers in the project, is the Tempo and Mode of Plant Evolution. And the whole thing that really guided our project was the idea that if we can combine this really large map of how plants are related to one another with trait data. So in other words, whether or not a plant is woody or herbaceous or the size of its vascular tissue, or we have, we have traits on lots of things, with um, the climate information that I provided in the geographical distributions, we might really be able to say a lot about how this broad diversity of plant life evolved through time and what that might mean for future changes in diversity, as well as um, thinking about how plants in the past really coped with environmental change. Does this work address any climate change issues? Our current paper doesn't necessarily address um, future climate change that much, but I definitely think the, that's one of the things our group is interested in, and our in the phylogenetic tree will definitely play a role in that. One of the things that it can help us um, is by looking through the past and looking at how traits changed uh, in co- coordination with one another. So if, if le- leaf size, for example, got bigger or leaf thickness increased, what happened to seed size? And how does that change whether or not um, this plant tolerated a particular climate regime? That can really tell us a lot about what we might expect um, to happen in the future. So we, we have a pretty good idea of how climate climate's changed a lot in the past. And um, we are able to reconstruct those traits of those lineages backwards in time to see, okay, well, these clades survived that change or they adapted to that past change. How, how might then we expect diversity to change in the plants 
when we when we project forward future climate change, if we know the temperature is going to change in this part of the world or we know that drought is going to change in this way, how is that likely to affect plants and what clades are most likely to be affected? We know that in general plants are really similar uh, to their closest relatives. So um, even though there's um, many more species of plants on the earth than we have in our tree, we can still say a lot about the overall diversity of, of the plant life and, and how it's likely to change. What really fascinates you about species diversity and, and what mysteries do you hope to solve? So what's most fascinating to me is really trying to understand what ecologists sometimes refer to as community assembly rules. And so basically these are trying to understand what processes govern Um, the relative abundance and diversity of species in a community. So, for example, is competition between different species playing a really important role? Or maybe is the environment, as this study that we currently are talking about really is focusing on how environment has changed species. There's also dispersal and um, adaptation. Those are important ecological and evolutionary processes that I would like to be able to go out to current communities and find the signature of those processes and try to understand what their relative contribution is. That's really interesting from boost kind of understanding, well, how do our systems work? But it's also really critical if we're going to manage and conserve diversity in the future. Because um, if we, you know, for example, with global climate change or with changes in fire regimes or drought, we can kind of expect, okay, if the environment is really important, then this is what we might, how we might expect the community to be changing. However, if it's primarily competition, we might expect a different set of future scenarios for how abundance and diversity might change in a, in a community. So those, those are the kinds of patterns I'm really fascinated in looking at. And as I mentioned, I primarily do that in plants and birds, but as a macroecologist, I'm also really interested in trying to find these patterns across all, all taxonomic groups. And this is something that is becoming increasingly possible because there's a kind of a cultural shift taking place in science right now where increasingly scientists are sharing their data. So, for example, my mammologist friends will share their data um, with the plant people and with the bird people, and we can combine all of these different data sets to try to find some generality and synthesis across groups that can really guide us to, uh, to develop a better synthetic understanding of how communities are driven and, and shaped. And why should people care about plant evolution and this new study in particular? I think people should care because I think every day we kind of take for granted the plant adaptations we see in our own backyard. We might see a plant, we all these leaves drop, all these trees drop their leaves, and then in the spring they re-sprout their leaves. And how did that happen? It's actually recent adaptation in the lineage of plants. Um, these are relatively young clades in general. And the fascinating thing that our paper tells us is that that adaptation occurred after those plants arrived here. And so I think any time that you can have a study that really kind of takes something maybe we see every day, but we don't even really think how it, how it happened or how it came about, and we kind of provide more information on that, I think that's really exciting um, and important. Because the more we we understand our natural system, the more we appreciate it, the more we want to conserve it, and the better we can also manage and you know and and be able to uh, protect these resources for the future. You know, humans we really depend on on plants for so many different ecosystem services, from carbon sequestration to food and uh, medicines. And so I think the more we can kind of appreciate these organisms for what they're, what they're doing 
and how they do that, the the better, the more likely we are to um, to really try to take the next step and try to preserve them and and understand them. That was Utah State University ecologist Danny McLean, Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. The colors red and golden in the early winter trees. I don't know why it's hard to say what I know is right and what is wrong.